Thanks for pressing play. And if you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue podcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind where we have real conversations with the people making our world a different place. Now, many of us are different. And for many of us, being different is a superpower. Because human beings may connect on their similarities, but we all want to be valued and loved for what makes us unique, different, what makes us us. But what do you do if you're different is not always accepted in the business world? How can you navigate choppy, even hostile waters? How can you use your different as an advantage? Our guest today is the legendary Jim Fielding, and he has had an extraordinary executive career working at the highest levels of some of the most well-known and respected corporations in the world. Companies like The Gap, Disney, DreamWorks, and 20th Century Fox. And Jim is queer. And Jim's got a stunning new book out. It's called All Pride, No Ego, A Queer Executive's Journey to Living and Leading Authentically. And today, Jim and I get into all of it, from how to have a legendary career as an openly gay man, how to be different, and we dig into many of the thorny social dynamics that are uh, being discussed and dealt with right now around the LGBTQ plus community in modern America. And on this episode, we get into all of it, even the tough parts. So if you're different, you want to have a legendary career, or if you're somebody for whom diversity and crafting the workplace of the future matters to you, you're going to love everything about this very real dialogue with best-selling author Jim Fielding. Now, today, most CEOs have a tough time answering the question uh, that matters most in business, which is, are we going to meet, beat, or miss on revenue? And in good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. That's where my friends at Clary come in. They are the leaders in what's called revenue collaboration and governance, getting your entire company collaborating and governing on revenue. Clary's leading revenue platform manages over $1 trillion in revenue for over 1,000 companies. To learn how to rev up your revenue, visit Clary.com. That's C-L-A-R-I.com. Because every drop of revenue matters. Clary.com. Now. Hey ho, let's go. So, Jim, it sure is wonderful to meet you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, I have a thousand questions for you, um, <laughs> particularly at this moment in in American history. But if it's mm -hmm. okay with you, I'd like to start with this one. It's one of my favorite questions. Sure. When did you know you were different? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, I think six or seven, you know, I, I didn't know what it was called. I didn't, you know, I mean the whole representation matters. I'm sure we'll talk about that. I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. Um, but I, Definitely felt different then. 
and and not only sexuality different, I just felt that I was destined to do like I wasn't going to live in my hometown forever. I was destined to move on to something else. I think my parents really gave me wings at a really early age. Well, that's cool. Where did you grow up? Toledo, Ohio. That's a nice place. I've so, been there. Very nice. Yeah, very nice. I mean, you know, on Lake Erie, we were boaters. I mean, I was third generation. My my grandparents, I might even have been fourth generation. I think my great-grandparents. Um, you know, it was a great place to grow up. Went to a big public high school, Whitmer High School, 3,200 kids. Um, my dad was a fireman. My mom was a stay-at-home mom after being an x-ray technician. So a very you know, middle-class, blue-collar upbringing. And in a wonderful part of the world, years ago, I did a little consulting for Toledo Scale. And so I... Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a lot. I mean, Toledo Scale, uh, we were so tied. I mean, that was one of our famous. We were so tied to the auto industry. Yeah. You know, Jeeps are still made in Toledo, Ohio. The uh, uh, Not all Jeeps, but certain models. So Glass, Libby Owens Ford, Dana. It was a very... We were only 45 minutes from Detroit. Yeah. So we were very tied to big auto. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that too. I grew up in Canada, mm. and for part of my career, I ran Canada for a um, a software company based in in California. And uh, mm. I can remember going to Windsor uh, many times, and and we had some big yes. deals that we did with GM. And even though I was kind of the Canada guy, I helped our U.S. folks. And so I've been on many a sales call to uh, to General <laughs> Motors. And I remember back in the day. <laughs> They don't have a sense of humor about driving non-GM no. cars. Yes. So sure. we would literally drive. I think I was driving a Toyota at the time. Yeah. I would meet my American counterparts. They weren't driving GMs either. We would go to a Hertz, park our cars, rent, rent yeah. a GM car to go to GM. It wasn't just them. It was Ford, everybody, American-made. It's so funny you mentioned Windsor because as a kid, you know, pre- 9-11 and everything, we would go to Windsor, like you would drive across the bridge, like you were going between Michigan and Ohio. Like we didn't even think, I mean, to us, Canada, we knew we were in a different country, different currency, things like that. But there wasn't, you just drove across the bridge and showed your driver's license. I mean, you didn't need a passport or, you know, anything like that. It was, um, and again, we were boaters, you know, in Lake Erie that we yeah. grew up on, half of it is Canadian. And half you could cross Canada, the border anytime you wanted in the water. You, and we would like be in the water just, oh, now we're in Canada. Oh, now we're in Ohio. Now we're in Pennsylvania. Now, you know, it's um, Lake Erie is, it borders a lot of people. Yeah. Um, well, and the yes, fun thing, of course, different time. people who don't know, who haven't been there, you know, when you're in Detroit, you look across the river at Windsor and vice versa. You wave at Windsor. Yeah, you wave at And Windsor. to your point, I can remember being with customers on the Windsor side and on the Detroit side and going across the border with them for lunch and then crossing lunch. back over. Right. We, there I mean, was a time we, there was a time we would drive to Canada for gas because gas was cheaper. Like <laughs> it was, and, and especially on the boat, you know, boat gas was cheaper in Canada. So my dad would be like, come on, we're going to Canada. I was like, okay, we're going to fill up the boat. We're going to Canada. So you're an honorary Canadian then. Yeah, very much so. Well, that makes you pretty different right then. <laughs> <laughs> now, I really appreciate that you've written this book. And um, mm. it seems like uh, it has come out at a very uh, extraordinary time in American history yeah. around 
uh, rights and freedoms for people in the LGBTQ plus community. And so um, does your book feel different to you now than it did when you were writing it or maybe thinking about writing it? Yeah, it's it's a great, great question. Uh, Yes. I mean, I think it's taken on a sense of urgency and uh, uh, it's changed the conversation. Uh, I think, you know, when I, at first off, let me back up. I never intended to write a book. Like it wasn't on my like Oprah vision board. Right. And when I got approached by a couple of different publishers uh, who felt that I had something to say and a story to tell, I was really hesitant at first because I, I, I didn't think I could do it. I, you know, I was like, nobody really wants to know what, you know, I think or what my leadership style is. But the more I talked to people in my life and then talked to these publishers, I was like, you know what? I do have a story to tell. And originally, quite honestly, it was supposed to be a 2024 book. And as I got into it and started writing and started sending chapters to my editor, to their credit, they said, can you speed it up? Because with what's going on in the world, we'd rather get this out in 2023. We'd rather get this out in front of the election cycle and everything else. And and I was like, naive enough to say, okay, which sped up the process. Um, so I think even from that point, it took on a different feeling. And I think about, you know, March or April of this year, as I was going through the final drafts and, you know, getting ready to sign off, it, it dawned on me that it was more than a book, that it really was a platform and like a community starter. And people really, my early readers were responding to it. People really responded to the title and were like, you know, I think you need to think about, you know, building a website and, you know, really, you know, forming, starting more of a conversation, starting more of an ecosystem. It's not just a book. Um, you know, this could really be a conversation. And that's really what's happened. And I, I've been blessed, you know, with people like you to be doing interviews and podcasts. And I, I feel differently. And I feel that I have to use the platform and my voice to call out what is happening and to address the inequities and, to your point, the attack on fundamental human rights, not just for the LGBTQ community, by the way, it's pretty much for any marginalized community is under attack right now, but specifically for my community. And I, I need to use this platform, however temporary it is, uh, for the betterment of the community. I, I, I get that very much. It comes very across, uh, very, very much across in your work and in your kind of how you present yourself in the digital world and, and so forth. And so, um, Jim, what's your assessment of kind of where we are now? You know, I mean, it honestly changes by the day, Chris. Like it, it's it's one of those weird things that, you know, some days I wake up and I'm like, is this 1963 or 2023? Like, like you know, it really... I go through my news feed, you know, I scroll through my Apple news and my other, you know, digital sources. And some days you're almost in despair because like you see the headlines, you know, 528 anti LGBTQ pieces of legislation or book banning or anti drag shows. And you think, wow, this is overwhelming. And then, and then you'll see, you know, federal judge pushes back and, you know, drag, you know, there's, there's like these moments of these glimmers of hope, these green shoots and um, I think we're at another pivot point in our community where we're having to tell our stories again. And 
get out in front of this and own the narrative and say, this is simply wrong. And we cannot be pushed back into a closet or taken for granted. We are human beings. We are authentically who we are. And you cannot legislate away us for being who we are. And um, so I feel, I feel, I believe in my community and we've done this before. You know, we, we did it, the, you know, we did it in the 60s and 70s. We made it through the AIDS crisis. We fought for the right to marry, the freedom to marry. We, we just have to do it again. I think that's the thing about being in the queer community. It's just never done. The fight is never over and you can't just step back and say, okay, we're fine. You know, it's good now. Um, and I, the other thing that I find great about the community and the work I do with my alma mater at Indiana University and things is I feel really good about the young queer community. I feel really, really good that there is a new generation of people coming who honestly, I think, look at my generation and us older and say, good Lord, they need help. Like, God, we got to get in there and help them. Um, and I, and that gives me hope as well. I'm an optimist by nature, you know, from the book, I am by nature an optimist, but I think what's happened in the last 18 months has made me more of a realist, more of a pragmatist. Hmm. Okay. So can I share with you something I'm grappling with? Sure. So, and just by way of background, uh, I'm not a member of the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I have a gay uncle and he told me he was gay when I was a teenager uh, and it was a very emotional moment for him. It wasn't for me. He thought it was going to be a much bigger deal for me. <laughs> it was a much bigger deal for him. <laughs> it's always very traumatizing on our side. Yeah, it wasn't traumatizing <laughs> for me at all. I, anyway, yeah. and I've had gay friends my whole life. I went to school. I went to a quote unquote alternative high school where all the, uh, mm. the misfits go, so to speak, because I, while I'm not gay or in the queer community, I'm very much a misfit Um and so I just grew up with lots of different, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way. Sure. And uh, I have gay friends today. I have a trans uh, female niece uh, who's in her early 20s, uh, kind of lived through kind of all of her kind of waking up and sort of realizing she doesn't want to be a him anymore and that whole process mm-hmm. and loving her family and her parents and sort of seeing how her family dealt with it, which in my opinion was extraordinary. So that's a little bit of background. Here's what I'm confused about. Mm-hmm. So I'm 55, Jim. Mm-hmm. And when I grew up, I went to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I jumped on stage with all the other kids and I sang all the Frank and Furter songs and I'm just a sweet transvestite. Vestite, yeah. Uh, one of the first songs I learned to play on guitar was the Kinks Lola, which as I'm sure you remember, is a song about a boy losing his virginity to a trans person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love David Bowie and Mick Jagger. and Androgyny, 100%. Right? And Rebel Rebel, she, your mother's not sure if you're a boy or a girl, and Iggy Pop, and is Iggy Pop sli- sleeping with Mick Jagger, and or David Bowie, or blah, 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 all of that stuff. And then I remember mm-hmm. powerfully the first time Annie Lennox performed in the United States, I think it was on Saturday Night Live, when she dressed mm-hmm. up in sort of an Elvis-like outfit and they weren't, yeah. the Eurythmics were not known in North America. Nobody knew if she was a man or a woman. It was part of the intrigue and all of that. And so my point in sharing that with you is um, my memory, and I was a kid and a teenager, so, you know, Elton John, uh, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. 
and so, and of course I'm not gay, but my memory, Jim, is that that was cool. <laughs> uh, I was on stage singing and dancing. We didn't know who the hell was gay or trans or whatever the fuck. We were just singing Mm-mm. Frankenfurter songs or David Bowie songs or whatever totally. it was. And, um, and it didn't seem to be that big of a deal. And at least with musical artists pioneering the way, it was cool. And I don't remember giving a shit about was Annie Lennox a man or a woman or or was she gay or not gay or mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. David Bowie, we don't, is he is he sleeping? Who cares? And are the kinks gay? Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite bands of all time. Yeah. And so my point, my question I'm leading to something is yeah. that was my experience then. And the experience living today is radically different. So was I naive in the 70s and 80s and not seeing it or did are things did things change in the last handful of years in a meaningful way? I I mean I don't think you were naive. I think a couple of things. One and and you mentioned at the beginning of this. I mean you're you're an ally which is huge, right? And I think you've been comfortable around the community your whole life for a variety of reasons and and it's people like you and the allies in my life that make our uh, the march towards our rights possible. I think in the 60s and 70s, it was kind of a heady days in the 60s and 70s, you know, like post Stonewall. I think that the the expression of the 70s, there's a hedonism to the 70s, the disco era. You know, you could also mention Sylvester, right? I mean, like, you know, Studio 54. There was just like this, I think it was more of a free to be you and me time well, isn't, and, uh, is Ian and, Schrager gay you know I don't know if he is or um I don't I don't honestly remember I mean there yeah. was there was Steve Rubell yeah. and I think Steve Rubell was, was. I don't, if any of your listeners are like ah, I'm not honestly sure about Ian but I but I think again it kind of didn't who, matter no, well, no one cares nobody Studio knew 54 like was labels, the coolest place right you just you just wanted to be there right you just wanted to be part of that scene and honestly, what changed a lot for the community, I mean, won't surprise you, was AIDS. And I think I think the 80s, where we started to deal with the AIDS epidemic and, frankly, the Reagan presidency on how long it took to get acknowledged as a, an issue and how much the community fought, I think there started to become a demonization of the community because, you know, the assumption was, and and a lot of the early part of the AIDS epidemic was it was a gay disease. It was only the gay plague, um, right? There was the gay plague. And, and, you know, there was a lot of people, you know, on the far right in the Christian conservative that jumped on that, that may have been marginalized a little bit on their own in the seventies that took that in the eighties and ran with it. And, and there was people ironically you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Matilda Krim, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, everybody knows from COVID now, but he was on the leading edge of AIDS research. Uh, we had allies back then, I mean, the NIH and, and the Center for Disease Control. And we had to do a lot of education and storytelling back then because it wasn't a gay disease. It was affecting many communities. It was just disproportionately affecting the gay community, particularly gay men. And I think... Any time that that the far right or a homophobic group could demonize part of our community or part of our community, they jumped on that. 
And um, I, I think that really was the turning point. And then we've, and it honestly forced people into the closet. I think people that were more free in the seventies started, you know, to go back in the closet. And so, you know, if you look at Elton John during that time, like Elton John actually got married to a woman, like, you know, there was, there was a, almost like this conscious, like this big closet door that opened and we all kind of got shoved back in. And I, I, I think, listen, I'm not a gay rights historian, but I, I lived it. Like I lived the AIDS epidemic. I was, and then I moved to San Francisco in the AIDS epidemic. And so I was really living it. And um, I think that's really where this narrative started to turn on us and where people became very conscious of, what gay meant and that gay was wrong. Like gay became wrong. Like it was, no, that's not the way it's meant to be. And I, I think then we worked really, really hard. Listen, I never thought we would win the right to marry in my lifetime. Like if you would have talked to me in 2008, 2009, and I was living in California, I never thought it would be a national thing because I just didn't think we could change the hearts and minds of enough people in America. I thought, uh, I thought back then America was polarized. We're even more polarized now. So when that happened in 2015, I think I was, of course, I was elated and happy, but I was also shocked because I, I think that I was not convinced it was going to happen. But in a weird way, I think what we're going through now is almost a backlash for that victory, partially. You know, I think, I think the, the far right never was happy with that decision, never was happy with the Supreme Court. And I think the day that it passed, they started a strategic plan to figure out how to take it back. Um, I don't think it'll ever be taken back now because in all the national opinion polls, it's still the, the right to marry for the LGBTQ community is still popular. Republicans, Democrats, independents. It's slipping a little because of the narrative lately, but still it's it's not... It's not a winning platform for the far right. So what did they do? They demonize trans. They demonize drag queens. They go for like more vulnerable parts of our community. Uh, and the more outrageous parts, right? The more outrageous, the more visible. Right. I mean, I in look at you cases, and if you're walking down the street yeah. or we're sitting in a restaurant and you're there and I'm, I'm here. I'm a white man. I'm a white man. You're just another 100%. dude in a restaurant. Totally. You know, you're not in some kind of an outrageous and I would, costume. And I, or, right. And, right. I would be there with men and women. You of wouldn't course. know, right? And um, and by the way, I just got yeah. back from a dude trip with five of my yeah. buddies in Montana, and we traveled together, and we're there together yeah. as a group, and traveled yeah. back. And I don't know what people think of. I have no idea. We're traveling in and out of San Francisco Airport. I live in Santa Cruz, California. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. They can think whatever they think. And the other thing too, and this this maybe this is a fun yeah. thing to talk about. Yeah. So I'm a person who, when I end a conversation with a man that I have a deep personal relationship with, the last thing I say on that conversation is, I love you. Mm -hmm. I hug and kiss men. And there are some men in my life that uh, I kiss slash they kiss on the mouth. Mm -hmm. And so you could easily see me and my buddy Flip hugging and kissing and make whatever decision you want to make. And, um, and, uh, I'm confused about a lot of things, but I'm not confused about whether or not I'm gay. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And but so you, you're the, yeah, that you're an example of what I love. I mean, 
I write about in the book. Like I have some amazing straight male friends. There's nothing I love more than my straight male friends who are so comfortable in their own skin and their own awareness to know that I am not attracted to straight men. I love my relationship with them. I love them like brothers, but I would never, ever do anything, you know, to compromise that. I don't feel that way about them. But you also live in Santa Cruz, California, like, you know, and the way you grew up, it's, it's funny with me moving to Atlanta two years ago, I'm aware again, you know, I was in California 25 years and I, I wrote one of the, one of the things I wrote on social media was did 25 years in California make me soft? And it did. And, um, I've had to like re kind of get back in touch with my Midwestern roots with my move to the South, not Atlanta, but when I get outside of Atlanta, I'm, I'm very conscious of, you know, the geography where I am, which I, in California, I took for granted everywhere I went. Even though, you know, I'm sitting here looking at you, we're having this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. If I didn't know you were gay, I wouldn't know you were gay. And so Mm -mm. if you're in a, maybe more rural area or an area that you know is not necessarily welcoming to uh, the queer community, H- how would they know? I mean, it's no difference between it's you and me, really. Really. I mean, it's almost, and some of your some of your listeners will understand, there's almost like a code switching that I do. I, I can butch it up, frankly. Like, you know, I, I, play with my voice. I play with my mannerisms, even what I'm talking about. Like I'm very, if I walk into certain situations and even, even in the business world, if I walk into a boardroom or if I walked into uh, a boardroom in China or a boardroom in the Middle East, I was very conscious of what I wore, the colors I had on. Like I didn't, you know, like I, I would go more conservative. I wouldn't even call it straight or gay. I would just be more conservative. Well, and, more... and some of that, Jim, is normal, right? I mean, totally. When I went to Japan on business, when I was a, an executive, I traveled a lot, two to 400,000 miles a year for the better part of 20 yeah. years. And sure, what I would wear in Japan and the way I would conduct myself 100%. there is uh, very different than how I would in San Francisco or New York. So totally. we can all it's, context it's, shift. And look, I've been to many a gay bar in my life. I would imagine if you and I went to a gay bar together, mm-hmm. you might behave just put it bluntly, <laughs> more gay. Yeah. And if you and I went to a straight restaurant or bar, you might behave a little less gay. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but it also would depend on where, where that straight restaurant and bar was, right? Like, because if it was a straight rest quote, straight restaurant or bar in San Francisco, like, is there such a thing really like any bar you go into <laughs> no. <laughs> in San Francisco is mixed. Right. I mean, it's very, well, of course, rare. any bar anywhere is mixed. Really, yeah. Right? right. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if I was to walk into a gay bar with you, I am in my community for the most part, right. There's going to be a lot of straight people in there. Cause again, the allies and your friends and your brothers and your sisters and like people that are in town visiting you, but I'm still in my community. I'm in my element. And so there is a certain amount of probably relaxation that happens where you just let go a little and you know that you can go out and go on the dance floor and bump and touch a little and like bump into people and not be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's just, you're in the moment. And um, I think I mean, to me, that's the authenticity that I write about is that like, I'm probably 
more authentically myself in a gay bar than in a quote straight bar, it doesn't mean I'm uncomfortable in the straight bar. And it doesn't mean that I'm not having a good time. It's just, I'm more authentically myself in the gay bar. Yeah. And I, 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 you know, I can relate to that. If you, if we walk into a Catholic church together, totally, uh, I'm not going to say to the priest, Hey, good morning. How the fuck are you? Totally. No. Right? You, so you, we all, it's your to context. some degree. Yeah. And I think the funny thing is you mentioned you're 55. I'm 58. The biggest thing about walking into a bar now is I feel like everybody's grandpa, right? <laughs> like if I, so it's, I'm more conscious of like age and, and just the physicality of it all than even sexuality now. Yeah. Cause I'm like, Oh God, they think, they think I'm an old, you know, an old shit that's in here, you know, trying to dance. Like uh, I'm more conscious of age now, I think. Interesting. Than else. Yeah. So maybe let's spend a bit of time on your book and on, on sure. even broadly, you know, you've had incredible success at really <laughs> the highest levels of business as a senior executive. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you know, I've had a lot of gay friends. I've spent most of my professional life in the more entrepreneurial community. Mm -hmm. And I think while there are obviously challenges to being a queer entrepreneur, if you're successful Mm -hmm. um, and you're one of the founders, uh, you know, you get accepted in a way that maybe you don't if you're an S&P 500 executive at a massive mm -hmm. big name brand company, uh, mm -hmm. may maybe it's different. And so I'm curious, why don't you just tell me about your career and what being gay has and hasn't meant for being such a senior executive in, in multiple super successful places? Yeah, I mean... Well, the interesting thing, you know, I started my career out of college in a retail training program and you think retail, you know, I mean, the stereotype is it's probably a pretty gay industry. And I started my career in the closet. And by, I mean, by I, the way, for all the gay haters, if it yeah. weren't for gay people, there'd be no <laughs> art, there'd be no exactly. fashion, there'd, there'd be, be no, no music nothing. and there'd be no fucking food. Totally. No, want, I mean, no. We want you Why, folks we like the doing aesthetic. your thing. We like, yeah, we like the aesthetic. So, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I started my career in 1987. I started my career in the closet um, and ended up leaving that company because I felt that I was not being authentic and that I was being asked to be something that I wasn't and consciously looked for an opportunity with a different type of company. And that's when I ended up at the gap. And a part of the reason I picked the gap is they were based in San Francisco and they were known for their, at that time, diversity and equity and inclusion, which they were way ahead of their time on DEI before that became in vogue. Um, and then, you know, from that point on, when I, when I joined the gap in 1990, you know, I never looked back. I, then my career was, I was an out gay man and I um, would talk about my partner I would talk about what I did on the weekend if that meant I went to, you know, Pride or I went to a, a fest or whatever. And, um, you know, it just, it really, it just never occurred to me to edit that. Like I said, as I started to grow in the company and took on more leadership roles, to your point about Japan, when I was traveling around the world with Gap constantly making product around the world, there were certain situations that I was very, very conservative in by nature. I mean, when I was in Pakistan, when I was in the Middle East, like, you know, very, very different than being in London or being in Paris or being in Italy. Um, and I, you know, what I was rewarded for was I was good at my job and I really had a passion for what I was doing. 
And I was innovative and I would take initiative and I would always overpromise. Like I'd always overdeliver. I'd never overpromise. And so I started to get rewarded. I started to get recognized. And I had mentors in my life who were moving me along. And so the first half of my career, I thought I did end up being a retail CEO. But in the early part of my career, I thought that's what I was. Like I was just on a retail track and I was going to end up being, I didn't know if I was going to be a CEO, but I thought I was going to be an executive in retail. And then, you know, I had this pivot moment in 2001 where Disney recruited me to run the Disney catalog, which was a retail role within Disney, but that got me into media and entertainment. And so the second half of my career really became about media and entertainment, but it was always with companies. My role in those companies was creating products and experiences based on the stories that were being created by other people or the stories that had been told forever in the case of Disney. So I was still doing retail. I was still doing consumer products. I was just doing it under an umbrella of a large media and entertainment company. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, my culminating, you know, at Disney and being president of Disney stores around the world. And that was like bringing my worlds together. That was retail and media and entertainment smashed together. I mean, that was Disney store. And, uh, and remind me, Jim, how long were you the CEO of the retail business at Disney? I, I was president of the Disney stores for four years. Yep. And then I became CEO of Claire stores, the girls jewelry and accessory stores for a little over two years. Um, and then moved back to LA to do DreamWorks and awesome as TV. Um, so and by the way, Jim, I, congratulations yeah. on a legendary Thanks. career, dude. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I feel it was funny. That was part of the fun part of writing the book was like looking back and saying all the incredible leaders I had worked with and that I, I never took for granted. I knew working with Michael Eisner and Bob Iger and Jeffrey Katzenberg. I mean, I'm not being a name dropper. I mean, these are people I was working with on a daily basis. I knew that was special. I think sometimes when you're in the moment, you don't realize how special it is. And then after it's back, after it's done and you look back, you're like, oh my God, I learned so much from Jeffrey Katzenberg. I learned so much from Stacey Snyder at Fox. Well, and you are and in the business community, the equivalent of playing in whatever analogy you want, the World Series, the Super Bowl, the whatever. Yeah. I mean, you are at the highest levels dealing with and some I, of the most legendary leaders in modern business leaders, history. Yeah. And, and realizing that because of my work output and my credibility and my work ethic and my, my moral, like the way that I worked, I was just very straightforward and direct and I did the job. They valued that. And then if something happened, which is like, okay, so, you know, part of, part of my story is NBC Universal bought DreamWorks. My job was eliminated, but Jeffrey Katzenberg picked up the phone and called Stacey Snyder and said, you need to have lunch with Jim Fielding. I don't know what you're doing over at Fox, but just have lunch with Jim Fielding. And that lunch created the next two and a half years of my life. Um, that was Jeffrey. He didn't have to do that. Like he absolutely did not have to do it. He did not owe that to me. Stacy didn't need to take the lunch, but we, we met a one hour lunch turned into a two and a half hour discussion. And, you know, three and a half months later, I was working for her at Fox. So I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book and, and even like starting this, the press and publicity tour is, I mean, 
people that you interact with 15, 16 years ago come back into your life at odd times. And so I'm very conscious that I want people to think of me as hardworking and intelligent and trustworthy and, you know, like that's the, the reputation I want. Like, and that your reputation, like your personal brand, right? We talk about our personal brand, the personal brand of Jim Fielding that carries with you your whole career. And I'm not a huge if, fan of that term because I, yeah. Well, I think t- what is metastasized into is a manufacturing image of oneself, oh, that's right? Right. So I, I would right. imagine I you had much more of an earned story. reputation than a manufactured yeah. personal brand. It's my story, right? Yeah. If you think about brand, like it's my story, it's my resume, it's my CV. I have projects and tangible outputs that I can point to and say, we did this, right. My team did this. We did that. Then we did this. And, um, no, I feel, I feel very, very blessed. I also knew when it was time to leave. I also knew, you know, and ironically when Disney bought Fox and, you know, we went through that transition, which was a very long acquisition. And again, my job was eliminated. And honestly, the first time that I was fully laid off, like I had never really gone through a layoff. I was laid off. Like I got the official paperwork and, you know, the the exit interview and the outplacement agency and all of that kind of stuff. And I heard in my head the things that I'd been saying to people as I did reorgs throughout my entire career, which was take this time. This is what the severance package is for. Figure out what you want your next move to be. And my initial inclination, honestly, was, oh, my God, I've got to call so-and-so at Netflix. I've got to call this person at Amazon. I've got to call that person at HBO Max. I got to get my next gig, right? And I listened to the inner voice, and it was like, no, you know what? I need a break. That was tiring. I'm tired. I've been doing this a long time. And then the way things happen in the world, right as that was happening, the pandemic was starting. And so everything ground to a halt anyway, which really then forced me to do a lot of inward looking and that I, those isolating times to say, what do I want to do next? And my big discovery was as much as I loved big media and working with those people I did, I did not want to do another big media job. I did not, I did not want to go be the head of consumer products or experiences at a big media company. I'd done it and I'd done it well and I loved every minute of it, but I was losing my passion for it. And I felt like there was other things I wanted to spend my time on. And so the pandemic in a way, it wasn't a gift in many ways, but in a way for me, it was a gift because it forced me to stop and think. I I think it did that for pretty much all of us. Yeah. (laughs) And so if I was a younger Mm -hmm. uh, up and coming queer executive or entrepreneur and maybe I wasn't in um, a place or part of the country or part of the world. There's parts of the world where you can be killed for. It's not safe. Right? Yes, like very seriously dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I was somewhere that, let's say, wasn't uh, as welcoming as some of the places that you have been. I was, right. What advice would you give me to be a successful executive and to have a, if, let's say if I said to you, Jim, you know, you've had such an amazing career and. I would love to emulate facets of it and work with the kind of people mm-hmm. you did and do so many of the creative things that you did, et cetera. What, what advice would you give a young up and coming uh, queer person? For sure. And, and I love, I love the question because I do not ever take 
personal security or economic security for granted. And so that is the paramount, right? Like if, if you're in a situation, uh, a city, a country, a company where you are not able to be out or authentically fully yourself at work, I 1000% respect that because you have to check that filter first. But to anybody younger in their career or at a, you know, a certain point in their career, I would say be a lifelong learner and stay constantly curious. I talk about that in the book. Study, like learn about your industry. Learn. There's so many changes going on in all industries, in the consumer marketplace, in technology. Be open to innovation. Keep your mind open and study. Volunteer at work to serve on task forces or on um, committees at work, right? That are above and beyond quote your normal job. Like, so volunteer to work with make a wish or volunteer to work on special Olympics, or if something's important to your company, like get involved at work. Don't just like go drive to work, do your job, get in the car and drive home, like actually build community at work. The other thing I tell a lot of young people and, and you'll love this, Chris, because everybody thinks every move has to be up. I did a lot of lateral moves in my life. I did a lot of at the same title, the same compensation, but it was new experiences. It was buying a different category when I was a Gap. I went from sweaters to knits. That's like night and day. There was no title increase. There was no compensation increase, but I completely expanded my world, right? And I was a field person at Gap, a district manager. Then I became a buyer. Again, no title increase, no... And so many young people come to me and say, oh, I want to be promoted. It's time for me to be promoted. And I'm like, you know what? It's better for us all if we move you from this part of marketing. Like maybe you've been in trade marketing or PR. I'm going to now move you to social media. And that is so important because it makes you more marketable, especially when you're younger in your career. Because the problem is once you do start getting promoted, you get siloed. Right. And all of a sudden you're branded as a digital marketer. You're, you're that branded guy as or a, that gal. You're right. That, yeah. Oh, he's he's a field person. She's a buyer. You know, they're they're a, a digital marketer. And maybe spending um, a year in finance would be good for you or whatever. Right? Totally. Like get rotation. Right. The other thing you mentioned, and I say this to people, if you have an opportunity and again, it depends on your work life, your personal life and everything else. Do an over if your company is big enough and they have an opportunity for you to go work in Toronto or go work in London or go work in Paris, do it for a year, do it for two years because that's also going to help you. What, how is your brand or your product or your company perceived outside the United States? How is it perceived by a different demographic, a different psychographic? So, I think young, younger in your career, like do these lateral moves, expand yourself, learn. I, I don't have an MBA. I tell people this all the time. People are like, you were the CEO of a retailer. You were a CEO of a private equity company. You don't have an MBA. Do I have to have an MBA? I'm like, I don't have an MBA. But I don't have what? a GED. I, <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, but I worked, I worked for Mickey Drexler for nine years at Gap. I say all the time, that's like getting an MBA in retail. I got. I would imagine working for work. Mickey Drexler would be like getting an MBA every day. I mean, he's one of the greatest totally. retailers in one American history. One of the greatest history. retail minds ever. And- I had nine years there working under him. So not directly for him, but in his, in his time. And uh, so I always tell young people that. And 
And then if you can't be out at work, the other thing I tell people, and again, it depends on where you live because there are countries and cities that you cannot be out at. But if you are in a, maybe you can't be out at work, I encourage people to make sure they're being out at home and that they're getting involved in their local queer community. Maybe, again, volunteering at the LGBTQ center or like a crisis hotline or delivering meals or something to be in community. I worry about people who have to be closeted at work and closeted at home. I do worry about that mental and physical strain. Um, but again, you I have to be able to be granted. yourself in some somewhere, meaningful part of your life, somewhere right? Somewhere you have to, somewhere you have to be free to be the you that you were meant to be. So let, let's talk a little bit about this. And maybe Tim Cook is an example. Yes. Uh, because for a long time in Silicon Valley, it was broadly known or, or, or assumed that he was gay long before he even became CEO. I don't ever yes. remember it being a, anything. And then at some point he decided, uh, so he wasn't hiding in, but he wasn't out, out. And at Correct. some point he sort of was more declarative um, after he had become CEO of my memories. Right. But it was a couple Correct. of whiskeys ago. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. And one of the interesting things about Tim, and I think there's a lot of others, there've been women CEOs of S and P 500 companies who've taken somewhat similar stances. If I understand what he said, and maybe you know better, my memory is essentially I'm a gay man. I, I can't remember if he has a husband or a partner and I have my life, but I'm the CEO of Apple. And so I'm not going to be, I'm a crusader for Apple and what we're doing. I'm an individual. Yes, I'm part of this community. I'm proud to be. But what you're going to hear from me is Apple stuff, not mm -hmm. a ton of gay stuff, not a ton of a queer mm -hmm. stuff. And mm -hmm. so on one hand, he seems to be, again, my interpretation, very proud out queer person, mm -hmm. but also not somebody banging the table all day, every day about queer rights and injustice and so forth. And mm -hmm. I've heard some people say that that's great. And I've heard others say, well, fuck, you know, you're one of the highest profile people in this community in the world and you're not, quote unquote, using your platform. Mm -hmm. What do you think about all of that, Jim? Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, Tim Cook is the CEO of what number are they in the Fortune 100? One, one. two, three. No, yeah, no, they're one. the most valuable company yeah, in the history of the world. Yeah, the most valuable company in the history of the world. His first responsibility is to his shareholders, his board of directors, his employees. And so I, I understand that. And honestly, even my time at Disney, when I was president of Disney stores or CEO of Claire's, that's my first responsibility. And- I couldn't, when I, when I was at Disney, I couldn't do speeches, serve on panels, do anything without going through a clearance by the PR or communications department internally, because I'm Jim Fielding Disney during those times, right? I'm not just Jim Fielding. And I took that responsibility very, very deeply. It did not mean I was ever asked not to be myself, but I do think there is a filter that is put on you when you're at those mega, mega companies where one misstep or one misquote by Tim Cook can tank shareholder value. And that's just the reality of those kind of positions. I think that's why they're so stressful for anybody, gay, straight, male, female, black, white, those kind of positions, that CEO is, that is a really, really tough position. 
I don't know Tim personally, but I've watched what he does do with his personal philanthropy and what he does do with his personal time. And he is a proud out supporter of the community. And I have worked in nonprofits in the queer community that have benefited from his generosity and his foundation. He has a personal foundation. So he definitely supports in ways that he can. But I do agree with him that his first responsibility is to his shareholders and to his company. The other thing, to your point, he's never hidden from it. If somebody asks him, are you gay? He's a proud gay man. But similar to myself, that's not all we are. You're not only a straight man, right? He's that it's like a a huge part of it. And we're proud of ourselves and we love ourselves, but, but he's done amazing things with Apple. I mean, and to fill the shoes that he had to fill, um, you know, taking over from a founder and one of the biggest visionaries, that was a rough, rough, like, Unbelievable. I have so much respect for him. The job so that Tim Cook him. has done is fucking so far beyond legendary. I mean, yeah. I, I could it's, not it's hold him in higher esteem, which I guess leads me to an interesting point slash question, which mm-hmm. is I've talked to other gay executives, gay CEOs, mm-hmm. and one of the things they've said is the biggest thing. I, well, there's two things. Number one, I'm myself more than I am part of any one community. Mm-hmm. I'm a human first. First, totally. And number two, the biggest thing I can do for my quote unquote community is to be the most legendary leader, the most legendary entrepreneur, most legendary executive I can, because if I'm a different person and I'm publicly out as a different person and I'm very Mm -hmm. successful at my job and I do it in a way that's also laudable, I'm not an asshole about it. I've never heard anybody say, oh, Tim Cook, what a fucking asshole. Totally. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who might feel that way, but he's got a very, you know, I've been in Silicon Valley, I think almost as long as he has. And uh, he's got an extraordinary Mm -hmm. reputation as an incredible leader, fair, says Mm -hmm. what he's going to do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, so there's an element I hear, not from him, but from other gay executives that I know that says, look, yes, I'm going to do things to participate and forward the community and I'm not going to put up with bullshit and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, I'm getting paid to do a job. And the best thing I can do for my community is to be a legendary leader, legendary executive. hundred percent representation matters. I said it earlier, like Tim being who he is. If I was the 24 year old version of myself in Toledo, Ohio, wondering what I could be, I could look and say, you know what? I could be CEO of Apple someday, right? It's it's no different than the conversation when Barack Obama became president of the United States, the first black um, president of the United States, and what that meant to, to the black community and black kids around the world who looked and said, well, if he can do it, then I can do it. And that's what you hear no different than when a woman became the first CEO of a Fortune 500 company, right? Role models matter. Representations matter. And I love that Tim Cook is successful. I love that Tim Cook has literally, with his leadership, changed the world and continues to strive to improve Apple and make the technology even better and pushes themselves and pushes his whole team. Yes. <clears throat> so is that the best advice the best- for for younger yeah. up-and-coming queer folks is, yes, do things for the community, participate how you want, but the best thing you can do is actually just to go be legendary at your job. 
just be, be, be the best you, you can be. We're not all going to be legendary. Like Tim Cook is a unicorn. I mean, no pun intended. Like we're not all going to be CEOs. We're not all going to be CEOs of the number one largest company in the world or the fortune 500 or the fortune 1000. I think, I think what you can do as a queer executive, as a queer manager is just be the best you, you can be and be proud of who you are. Yeah. And, and that representation will change people's lives. And that, that to me is the authenticity that I talk about in the book. Yes. Like that's being authentic. Now, maybe let's go to um, a, a few sensitive things if we could, Jim. Sure. So earlier you mentioned DEI. Mm. And um, my sense of it is, having been an executive before DEI started and then subsequent to it, that it came from, a, the ideas around it came from a very good place, a very fair place, uh, a very open-minded place, and a place of making a difference. And I think a lot of people who um, support and, and promote DEI today are still very much that way. Mm-hmm. And it is bit, is that a doggy you have in the background there? No, no, it's, I was like, just, or what? I thought they were being so good. <laughs> yes, I don't know who's, I don't know who's at the house. Well, I have a, you, you, you might appreciate this. I have a cat who identifies as a dog. Oh, yeah. And yeah, now I got them both going. Hi, folks. <laughs> They're leaving. They're okay. leaving. And, and anyway, my, my cat who identifies as a dog, his name is Bean, and he he normally makes appearances as as I have these discussions, but he uh, he was out in the garden with me, so I think he might be napping. <laughs> I normally close the door. That was a lesson to myself. I think that's one of the fun things about podcasting is it's <laughs> it's it's less formal. You know, we're not those, on those Fox News children. or those CNN. Those are my or, children. Yeah, yeah, those are my children. Exactly. So with DEI now, mm-hmm. my sense is in some places it's metastasized pretty badly. Mm-hmm. And, and DEI in some places has become the machine that it raged against. And, and here's what I mean, that there are certain diverse groups that we want to have equity and inclusion around. But a lot of others, not so much. Point A. Point B, we're now going to manage to some kind of quota. Because if we don't, if, if, if the website doesn't have the right amount of fill-in-the-blank differences, then we're bad. The state of California, as you might know, a little bit ago, uh, put a law in place that says if you're, I think it's for public companies only, but if you're a public company above some size, you're Size, right. legally required to have a woman on the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, every time I turn around, LinkedIn keeps asking me all these questions about that are DEI related. And I have a bunch of difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm neurodiverse. That's not included 100%. in DEI at all. And I'm also somebody who expresses myself with colorful language. And I got into an argument with the head of DEI of a very large S&P 500 company because she was explaining to me if I worked at her company and swore that I would be fired. And I said, well, then you don't have language diversity because I'm not swearing at you. That's a very different thing. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about being in a meeting. Jim, that was a fucking great idea. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's my authentic self-expression. And what I said to her and it made her very angry. It was at a conference and the entire room went beyond quiet 
I said, so let me understand this. Part of my self-expression is swearing. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm going to get fired. And if I came to work tomorrow in a dress with a wig and makeup on and said, from now on, call me Susan, I would be celebrated for expressing myself authentically. I do not have a, D a GED because the neurodiverse are radically discriminated against in the school system. Mm. And so my intelligence was not recognized, doesn't fit in the school system. Well, mm -hmm. at uh, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, IBM, pick your company. I wouldn't have been able to get a job until very, very recently. Yeah. And so my point is, to me, it seems like DEI has become protecting some of the chosen people and kind of fuck everybody else. Now, that's a, I don't mean it generally. I don't mean it everywhere. Yeah. I just mean in some places. And I think what's starting to go on as a result of some of that is DEI folks are becoming the thing that they hated and people who are less open to true equality have become very angry and now DEI has become a bad word in, you know, parts of the country, a bad phrase in parts of the country. So I'm just curious, what's your reaction to all of that? Well, I mean, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's the diversity. It's the definition of DEI. I mean, I've, I've worked with many different DEI organizations and I, I can speak for Indiana University where I've done some work with the DEI group. Neurodiversity physical differences, you know, um, you know, people who are, you know, in a wheelchair or is part of that group. So being anywhere on the neurodiverse spectrum, I, I think where DEI, you know, where there's a fight going on in DEI right now is if it becomes DEI is only about LGBTQ or only about Black, that is where we start to have problems because that's not what it's supposed to be. DEI, and actually I like, I've worked with companies, I'm advising a company right now where their DEI department is called the belonging department. That's intentional, right? Because it's not the DEI department, it's the belonging department because we all have differences. Straight white people have differences. We learn differently. You learn differently. You, I, I used to say like on my team at Fox, I had a, a woman who was a single mom of four, you know, raising four children on her own and working a full-time job. Her differences and her needs were real. Like she had to leave at a certain time. She had daycare ramifications. She had, so knowing her story, knowing what made her unique, knowing what her needs were, what her differences were. So when she walked in the room, I'm like, that's a straight white woman. Okay, but it's not. That's a straight white woman who's divorced and raising four kids on her own that has two of them at daycare that ends at five o'clock, right? And to me, that's the authenticity. What you just shared is you're sharing your vulnerability and your story. We all have quirks and differences. That's the thing that frustrates me the most when supposedly the straight white patriarchy or matriarchy comes out and says, those others, those others. And when I really would sit down and talk to them, and I and if I got to know them, I'd say, well, come on, I'm sure there's things that are different about you, right? And even, you know, and it gets into touchy subjects, it gets into religion, and it gets into socioeconomic background. And But we all have differences. And honestly, what I'm trying to use my platform for and the book and everything else is saying, we all have the right 
to be authentically who we're meant to be. And for me as a leader, it's not about I only want to manage gay people or I only want to manage gay men. Like, that would be ridiculous. Like, I don't want a team of 100 gay men. That would not be managing diversity. I want to create safe environments where people feel like they can share their stories like you just did and where they are comfortable in saying, this is what I need to be successful. To me, that's what leadership is about now. What do you need to be successful in your job and to be as productive as you need to be? And so if that meant that single mom meant she had to leave at 4.30 right? because she had to be at daycare by five, that's fine. Right. One of the greatest women I ever worked with her, I won't say her full name, but her first name was Janet, incredible marketing leader. And when I was interviewing with her, and this was, you know, back in the mid 2000s, um, right in the interview, she said, hey, listen, I'm a mom and I'm super engaged with my kids and we have this and we have that. And sometimes I have to leave Mm -hmm. and da, da, da. And if any of that's a problem, you need to tell me right now. And I said to her, Janet, I don't give a shit what you're doing. If you produce the results that you're committed to producing. I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're at home. This was long before work from, it was long before any of that shit, right? I know that that's, what's so funny. I don't care. Leave it 430. I don't give a fuck. I've, I've I've listened to your other, I've listened to other guests you've had. And this is what cracks me up about this debate about hybrid or work from home and everything. We were doing that 15 years ago. Like we remember when summer Fridays started and like all that stuff. And like, As a leader, I have always had a flexible workforce policy that if you need to work from home certain days, work from home. If you need to take time off because your child is sick or they have a doctor's appointment, do it. I've never been like, we work from eight to five. I own you from eight to five and all of your productivity has to be focused on me. And even myself, I get some of my best ideas at 10 o'clock at night when I'm randomly watching a show on television or reading a book. And I'll just jot something down on a piece of paper. Like I, I've never been as a leader and listen, I was working in creative environments. I wasn't working in a factory. I wasn't working security. I get there's certain jobs where you need to be rigid about your staffing. I've never been that way. I, I think neither my job have I. I've was, always thought that was ridiculous. My, yeah. My job was create an environment where people could feel respected, trusted, and productive. Now I I have I'm um, what you might consider a, a politically a radical independent, uh, <laughs> which means nobody likes me and nobody agrees with me and there's no station I can watch and there's no party yes. I can be part of because I yes. like a bunch of things there's the no Democrats do station. and I can't stand a bunch of things the Democrat and vice versa and so I'm just like 100%. in this weird no man's land uh, and I have friends all across the political spectrum because what I decided earlier in my life is your beliefs about certain political issues can be your beliefs. But if you're fundamentally a good person, I'm going to have room for you. Even if I radically disagree, we don't have to agree on everything. Even if on there, there aren't some huge things. I mean, I have people that I love that, you know, think, think abortion should be completely illegal. And I think every abortion is a disaster and a, and a tragedy. I want there to be zero abortions. So mm-hmm. I tell people I'm pro-life. I don't want there to be zero abortions. And I'm pro-choice because I think it's none of my business to tell a woman what she can and can't do, do, which makes me insane to both sides. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, you know, how do you navigate with, because I hear a lot of people, so in the the queer community, it could be very easy, I can imagine, to be very angry at a a whole bunch of people right now. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And so, and, and for reason that you could argue is very good reason. And yet more yelling doesn't seem to be working, whether it's on a political issue or, or, or a queer issue or anything else. Mm -hmm. And we're yelling more at each other than we ever have in our history, certainly in our mm -hmm. modern history. And so how do you think about navigating that as a, as, as a queer executive? And what would you say to other queer executives about, about that? Well, I mean, you know, politics, again, there's a spectrum of politics. Like, you know, and I, you know, again, this polarization in politics, I grew up in a very union household in, you know, but uh, I grew up in Ohio. Ohio used to be a legitimate swing state. Like it used, I mean, and we, ironically, my dad ended up being a mayor in Florida, um, but my dad taught me early on to vote for the person, not necessarily vote for the party, and taught me early on that all politics are local. And I think what's going on in our community right now, we sometimes get so hung up on the presidential, right? Like we get hung up on that level where most of our issues right now are at the state and local levels. And so we forget about governors, we forget about mayors, we forget about city council, we forget about school boards, and we get so hung up on the presidential politics, where in reality, where our rights are being attacked, book bannings and taking books off shelves and stuff, that's at the school board level, that's at the city council level, that's not at the presidential level. And so in my life, I have voted for Republicans, I have voted for Democrats, I have voted for independents, because I vote for the person. I tend to vote and lean more towards the social issues, a woman's right to choose, LGBTQ rights, Black rights, Latino rights. But fiscally, there's many things that I believe that are, quote, on the Republican platform. My dad was a diehard Republican, but he's, he's, we lost him 10 years ago now. He was not blind to what was happening in the far right. He was more of a centrist Republican. And, and I think any Republican that would stand up and say, I don't have the right, like, like he would probably say, I have a gay son. He would argue with them about LGBTQ rights. Um, so I think we have to get back to some kind of civility in politics where we can have these discussions. And this is freedom of speech. This is America. Democracy is work. Democracy is you you need to work. You need to have those discussions. And that's where I like get back to the storytelling of participate in the debate, attend debates, go meet the candidates in person, ask the questions, see how they answer. Like, and for God's sakes, vote. You know, I think one of the things I was a political science major, Chris, like one of the things that makes me so sad is the percentage of people who actually vote, right? That makes me sad. We Are we below 50% now, uh, Jim, it, in the federal elections? It seems elections? to vary. I think so. I think it's, so. It seems right to vary. There, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I believe every vote counts. And by the way, I live in Georgia now. If you want to know every vote counts, look at our two Senate races the last two times where we had runoffs and they were decided by thousands of votes if you want to know if your vote matters or not. And so I, I just think we have to get back to the civility of of being able to disagree without attacking each other and without personalizing the attacks, disagree and have the discussion. And 
what you just said. I'm pro-life and pro-choice. Okay, explain that to me. You did. But explain to me what that means. That I want to understand. And I need to respect that in you. I may not agree with you. Right. But that doesn't mean I don't like you. Right. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't not vote for you because it's it's we're a spectrum, right? We're we're all the colors in the rainbow. And I just think this, like, to your point, you know, you've got Fox News, you've got CNN, you've got Newsmax, you've got this like it's either right, it's either left. It's like, where is the middle? We we're to me, we're I, a country I don't know. of the middle. It makes me crazy. And to me, I have to in my news feed. One thing I do, and I tell people this, I I put Fox News, I put things in my newsfeed on purpose. I, I read because it all. I want, right, because I want to have a balanced understanding. Yeah. If I do not want an echo chamber of just everybody feeding me one side or the other side. Now, I can't represent uh, the far right by any stretch of the imagination, but some of the things I hear, Jim, that get them very excited are uh quote unquote queer people grooming our kids yeah and and drag queen story time and Mm. we're gonna ban drag queens within a four mile radius of a school or whatever Mm. like all this sort of stuff because Mm -hmm. and then i saw this recently on social media i don't know if it was staged i don't know if it was a fake i don't know what it but it went around all over the place and they positioning of the video was it was some kind of a uh pride event of some court uh, some sort and people were chanting we're here we're queer and we're coming for your children and so i hear all this stuff and i'm curious i I have a reaction to it but what's your reaction to it well i mean i think just like in the straight community there are many different pockets of the queer community And I get frustrated when most of the narrative that you're talking about is coming from one pocket of society and that the other narrative on the other side is not really getting their message back. I mean, and so when I hear, you know, we recruit children or we're grooming children, it makes me sick to my stomach because I happen to know that's not like in our community, that's not a fact. And by the way, pedophilia is an issue, gay, straight, bisexual, trans. That's an issue that is not a gay issue or a straight issue. That is a problem, right? The sexualization of children is a problem for all communities, not just the gay community. When I see drag queens get demonized for doing basically what they do, which is giving back to the community through Drag Queen Story Hour. They're not doing Drag Queen Story Hour to recruit. They're actually trying to give back. And again, living their authentic lives, that's how they want to express their creativity, their art, their uh, contribution to society. Again, I I think a parent has a choice. The parent of that child, you can send your child to Drag Queen Story Hour or you can not send your... I mean, we're not like constricting children and picking them up in a bus and taking them to Drag Queen Story Hour. Some parent, I heard you guys were handcuffing children and bringing totally. them. Totally. <laughs> it's like some parent decided, I want my kid to go to that or I don't want my kid to go to that. Again, welcome to the world. Welcome to America. Freedom of choice. Um, but I don't think you can outlaw. I, I don't think it's the government's role to become parental like that. I think parents have to make those kind of decisions. So- Again, it goes back to me. I'm a storyteller by nature. 
I think we need to share the stories of Drag Queen Story Hour and what that's done for communities overall. Like, we're not hearing that story. We're only hearing what's wrong with them. We're only hearing what's bad with them. We're not hearing enough back the other way. And so I hope I can be a small part of that because it it saddens me. It, it 100% saddens me. And, and then it becomes demonizing of an entire lifestyle or an entire segment of our community. And I, I don't think that's right. I just don't think that's right. I, I tend to agree with you. And I, I think it's a parental choice. I think it's totally fine for a parent to say, I don't want my kid to go to that. That's their total totally. choice. They don't need to. The other thing. They don't need to. So this is the part that I'm trying to reconcile in my brain. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, I grew up in a very, what today we might call queer positive family and gay uncle. And uh, my uncle took me to a gay bar on my 16th birthday. I, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and the legal drinking age mm-hmm. there is 18, but it's merely a suggestion. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and his his partner, still his partner to this day, uh, uh, they were very early in their relationship at the time. And we went, went out and we had dinner and we had a few beers and this and that. And as the evening progressed, they said, hey, do you want to? come to the bar where we met? And I said, absolutely. And my uncle said to me, are you sure this bar is a very gay bar? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, and we had a f- fantastic time. And so I guess I grew up in this very queer positive. I went to high school, like I described earlier. Mm-hmm. And so if anybody was kind of being groomed or had the potential to be groomed, <laughs> uh, I was being groomed and I was not groomable. I wasn't being groomed. I was having not who you are. I was having right. fun with my gay friends. Are. I was having fun with my uncle. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of that. Uh, I was mm-hmm. singing Rocky Horror Picture Show songs and David Bowie mm-hmm. songs. And so my personal experience is you couldn't fucking groom me. I am who I am. At the same time, I recently had dinner with uh, friends of mine or a couple. And the gal has, uh, they have kids from prior marriages in this case. And the gal's kids are in their late teens and they go to school in the San Francisco area. And one of them has come out as gay and the other one has come out as trans. Mm. And so uh, we were chatting about that over dinner. And I said, you know, how did you feel? How do you feel about all that? And what she said to me was, well, I don't know whether they're going to be trans or gay their whole lives. Mm. What she said is for some kids today, it's a it feels like a rebellion in kind of the way punk rock was. Mm. And um, and so there is a higher incidence of kids saying that they are these things. And we'll see over time how this plays out. And so what I'm trying to understand is, is because in certain parts of the world, certainly Northern California, where it's much more OK, are people just coming out of the closet in more declarative ways as younger and younger people or is there there doesn't seem to be in my lived experience any truth to this grooming thing but is it possible there are some kids who feel like they're going to be more well accepted or going to have more success whatever however they feel if they declare themselves as such because now it's the cool thing and so i guess my, my question is is there any valid uh, validity in your mind, Jim, to maybe not grooming, but the fact that it's now more socially acceptable, kids who wouldn't have been this way are now this way, or is that complete bullshit in your mind? Or somewhere no, in between? No, I mean, I, I, no, I think 
again, I think representation matters. And because we have worked so hard over the last 50 years to increase visibility, like I think there's always been a question about 10%, right? There was always this thing that 10% of the population was LGBTQ. Part of it was from Kinsey, different things. But I don't know if we ever really know what that number was because there was a lot of people who were living closeted lives and were not fully themselves. And so I think, I don't, I definitely know we're not grooming, but I think we have worked to create a society, particularly in Northern California and different places where, again, you are free to express your feelings and express yourself and, and frankly, experiment. And listen, adolescence, maturation, all of that, there's a lot of things going on in your life. And I think you should be experimenting and be free to figure that all out. What I don't, I don't think it's like, I wasn't a phase, right? Like that's the thing that I worry about is it's not a phase. Like I knew at a young age that what I was, I, again, I didn't know what it was called. I thought it was wrong. I thought I wanted to be something that other than that, for a variety of reasons, I, I like when I meet 15 and 16 year olds who are comfortable in their skin and are willing to declare that they're non-binary or that they're gay or they're bisexual or, you know, whatever there, there is, because I feel like we are then allowing them to be what they're meant to be. Like that we're, we're raising them in a society that is less judgmental than what I was raised in and certainly less dangerous than what I was raised in. So I, I think, listen, the, the trans experience of the trans community, I am not an expert on the trans experience. I think there is a whole, you know, there's a whole body of study and a lot of experts in that space. Um, but I, I, again, similar to what I think, think about in the workplace, I, I want to live in cities. I want to live in communities where people are just free to be themselves, whatever that means. And um, because I think for so long, I did, I wasn't free to be myself and I edited myself and I wasn't bringing the best of me to situations. And so there's the cat. There's then me. I just, I, I, I just, that's what I hunger for. Like I hunger for communities where people get to be authentically who they are. Well, um, and the cognitive and I think, dissonance I, I have with the far yeah. right is, you know, I'm an immigrant to this country from Canada. I'm an American citizen, very proud to be. And I read the Constitution. I read yeah. the Declaration of Independence. I understand what life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is supposed to mean, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And so, and freedom to, of speech. Yes. So these things to me seem like American values that, that many preach, and then they turn around and go, yeah, but as long as you're the thing I say is okay to be, and if you want to be a different totally. thing, then kind of go fuck you. And and I have this cognitive dissonance around like, well, wait a minute. Am I free to pursue my freedoms and happiness and live my life as long as I do it in a lawful and fair and, you know, as long as I'm not an mm-hmm. asshole and I'm hurting people way or, or, or not? No, I, I totally agree. I think I think it's dangerous in any part of the political spectrum when people start to define what those freedoms are, like what is acceptable. And that's what's going on. I mean, that's what all this legislation is about. And that's what our community is fighting back against because we, we don't want to be defined by legislation, right. Or, or be told that we're less than or be 
put in a box or be put yes. back in a closet. That's not what we think America is about. Right. And I and I agree with you. And I think, you know, I think what you said, you read you're an immigrant, you read the Constitution, you read the Declaration of Independence. I was a political science major. I took civics classes in high school. I think we need to get back to that. Like I think how many Americans, if you asked how many Americans have read the Declaration of Independence or read the Constitution, even the Bill of Rights, just the beginning of the Constitution, how many people really have read that? They, Studies show most Americans don't know, A, how many branches of government there are, and B, what they yeah. are. So, and, I've, and I know that civics, like our class when I was in high school, it was called civics. And we were taught about the branches of government. We were taught about how a bill becomes a law. We were taught about the Bill of Rights. We were taught about, I know that's been cut in a lot of curriculums, right? That saddens me because to me, that's learning to be an American. That's learning to be a democracy. That's learning to vote. That's learning to participate because voting is participation. But I also think the campaigning and the education leading up to the voting is part of participating in democracy. Yes. And like I said earlier, democracy Democracy is a privilege. It's not a right. We cannot take it for granted. And, and that's what makes me sad is that when you talk about queer rights, when you talk about voting rights, when you talk about women's rights, when you talk about uh, Black civil rights, Latin civil rights, there is a certain segment of the population that is trying to curtail all that. Yes. Because they're trying to protect something. They're trying to protect systems. They're trying to protect a patriarchy that honestly doesn't exist anymore. I mean, we are a diverse. America has always been a diverse melting pot. We've always been a group of immigrants. We've always been a, a group of very different. The Midwest is different than the South is different than the West is different than the mountains. That's America. And uh, I, I think we, again, we have to get back. I said it earlier, we have to get back to like this basic understanding of, of political science, yes. this basic understanding of civics and the civility I, we I used to debate. More. We used to debate healthily. Right. We didn't debate. It wasn't so angry. It wasn't so yes. angry. Now it's angry. And then what about you know the other hot button issues I hear coming from the right are are trans kids, and, yeah. and they call it getting mutilated and so forth. If I yeah. if you have a sixteen year old or what whatever age year old mm. person who goes through some part of a medical treatment and and mm -hmm. many or some on the right are very upset about that mm -hmm. um what's your take on and by the way i, I don't my, know my, how to feel that about that i yeah I, my my take is my take is sit and listen to that person and that family who is making that decision and by the way they're making that decision as an adult no nobody is getting surgery. Like the ages that they're talking about is crazy, but go and talk to a trans person, go and talk to a uh, family that has a trans uh, child in it and talk about that experience that they're going through and talk about, like I had to educate myself on this topic, Chris. Like I, I didn't know. I, now I'm very glad that I have many trans friends in my life. I had to learn about this and really sit and listen to them again without judgment and understand that they grew up feeling like they were in the wrong body, that they were not, that something was wrong with them. I grew up feeling like something was wrong with me. I still wanted to be male. I, I did not, I did not want to be trans. I, but I wanted to be with other men. Um, and I know how I felt 
And I know the despair that I went through. And so I, what I try when people are coming after the community, I'm like, have you ever sat and talked to a person who has gone through it or a person who is going through it right now and talk to them, but also talk to their mom and talk to their dad, talk to their brothers and their sisters. Like, let's learn about it. I, I think it's something we have to listen and learn and try and listen and learn without judgment. Amen. Hallelujah, um, brother. And it's not just physical. That's the other thing. Everybody gets into physical. It's access to mental health care. It's access to counseling. The, the suicide rate among trans kids is crazy. two or three times higher than among other, even in the LGBTQ community. Let's learn from that. Let's yes. listen, people. Let's listen. That's, that's well, and listen without judgment. Somebody who has a trans child in my, yeah, what you might call life. adopted yeah. family, one of my closest yeah. friends. Um, you know, we've lived through that all together. And the interesting thing about that is, um, and they're from Boston. Um, mm -hmm. when this child came out and said, um, what she said and so forth, was it confronting? Was it upsetting? Was it confusing? Sure. But very, very quickly, very quickly, the entire family, grandparents, the entire family said, okay. Uh, so she wanted a new name. She told us what that name was. She wanted to be referred to as she, not he. And some other things. And that's what we do. And we never refer to her as a him. And we never mm. use her, her old name. Well, I mean, every once in a while there's a slip, but now not so much. And nobody gives a shit. And when somebody asks my friend, uh, about his life. Maybe he's meeting a new person. Oh, do you have any kids? He says, yeah, I have a daughter and I have a son and, 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 and my mm -hmm. daughter does this and my son does that and da 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 mm -hmm. And it's kind of yeah, a, noth but a thank, nothing but burger. Thank God, thank God for that individual, but that's not everybody's experience. I think that's what this whole discussion is about. There's a lot of people whose families aren't that advanced and are not that welcoming and not that non-judgmental and and I think, but all that's I'm saying, Jim, is professionals help. It's yeah. Maybe our lived experience is really different. It, it's really not that hard. It's really not that hard. I I, I agree with you. And, and it, none of us again, know I if this is going to be. None of us know if this is going to be permanent. It feels like it probably is. Yeah. This this child who's now in in, in her twenties may yeah, decide I, something I differently. Phase, I, I have right. no idea. But my point is, there's a moment of uncomfortable. Everybody mm -hmm. gets it. You love the kid. And end of discussion. And, and it really, after a very short transition period of being uncomfortable, including with grandparents and uncles and aunts and all this sort mm -hmm. of shit. Okay, great. Your name is now this new name. And we call you she. End mm -hmm. of Great. I'll call you whatever the fuck you want me to call you. <laughs> no, that's huge. But not every, unfortunately, not every trans person has that experience, right? And they don't have that family network. And well, and in this person's case, the minute all of this happened, or maybe not minute, but in, in the coming months and certainly in the coming years, um, she has had a huge breakthrough in the success in her life. Mm -hmm. And before that, well, because she was probably blocking. Oh, before right? that, she was all fucking upside down. And it was not going oh, yeah. well at all. Really, not going because well. Because she was con she was conflicted and not living her authenticity. I mean, not right. living her full story. And I think that's 
yeah, I mean, that's, that's the message in all of this is that, and thank God for your family and the network that you're part of that have embraced her so well and accepted the pronoun use and the name change. Because again, that's not everybody's experience. It's just not right? a big deal. It really isn't. Yeah, but thing. I, I wish it was like that for everybody. That would be a beautiful place. Well, we're trying to get there. Yeah. Jim, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, my gosh. It was amazing. Great discussion. Thank I'm so, so glad much. you wrote your book. Thank you. Congratulations on a legendary career. Congratulations Thank on you. being the voice that you're now being. And and you know what? You're you're doing it in a way that is so wonderful. Mm. Because when I've seen this before, whether it's in the queer community or when Me Too happened, I understand the anger. I'm I'm an angry person, as I explain to people. Anger is my happy place. Um, and I've learned to own my anger and hopefully channel it in positive ways. Mm-hmm. But I, I understand anger and I can move to anger quickly, particularly around issues of injustice and not yeah. just injustice towards me and injustice to many in people. General, yeah. 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 Um, but what I have found is when, when there's somebody who's on an injustice topic, who's sort of super radically mad at least for me personally, I, I don't know where to stand with that person if I don't share that particular different that they share. Mm-hmm. Because I feel excluded from it. And I hear a lot, like I, I've had this said to me, I can't tell how many times. They start going down male white privilege with me and they say, well, when you walk into a room, everybody assumes this about you and you've got it easy and da 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 da. And I say, well, that was not my lived experience. I didn't get a high school diploma. I got thrown out of school. And when I walked into a room, everybody said, there's the fucking dummy. So, mm. you know, they, they make all these wrong assumptions, assumptions about me right. based on things. Anyway, um, I guess my point is, um, I hope we can start to move to a place where we do what you say. And you said the most powerful thing. And I think this is the same thing on racism. Mm. You know, Right now we have uh, uh, a, an increase in Asian hate. Right now we have an increase in Jewish hate, et cetera. Yeah, anti-Semitism. Yeah. It's unbelievable, right? It's like, I, I just say to people, really? Have you had lunch with a Jewish person? Go talk to an Asian person. Totally. And I love the way you say, well, go talk to a trans person. Go talk to Mm -hmm. the parents of a trans person. Just Mm -hmm. have a human fucking discussion and maybe, just maybe start with, and with a little empathy. Yeah. And, and, and so my hope is that more people in the queer community can be like you. Which is welcome me to the discussion and allow me to ask some of the questions that I think a lot of people who are straight don't feel like they can ask. But you, if I'm trying to make you feel welcome and belonging and safe in the conversation, the part that doesn't get talked about is you've done that for me. No, I love that you say that. I mean, I talk a lot about. Again, it, to me, it's sharing stories. It's shared storytelling. And it's inviting me, inv- you inviting me in and me inviting you into a conversation. And that you're going to come into that conversation and I'm going to attempt to listen without judgment, learn. It doesn't mean I'm not bringing a lifetime of baggage with me and a lifetime of assumptions and everything else, but I'm really going to attempt 
to go in and be open and learn and and take something away. I think it always has to be a two-way street. I think it has to be mutually beneficial that I'm going to learn and you're going to learn and that we're going to be better off for having had the conversation. And I'm I'm willing and I know as I go out on the road and I start to do my press tour and I start to do these signings and stuff, I'm prepared for some backlash. I'm not stupid. Because I put queer on the cover of my of my book. I I know that is going to have some issues. And that's okay, because actually, if someone can just be calm enough and respectful enough, let's have the discussion. I'm not right all the time. You're not right all the time. Let's have the discussion and let's learn. And, and it's how I, it's, I'm, I'm very blessed that that's how I grew up in a family. I grew up in a family of people who read and discussed and debated. We were a family of debaters for sure. And from a very early age, we were taught to have a point of view and have courage in your convictions, but be respectful and listen to the other person. And that's that civility that I just hunger to get back to. Well, and I deeply, deeply appreciate it because sometimes in in some communities, uh, I don't feel welcome because they prejudge me. For the same 100%. reasons they argue that I should not prejudge them. This is sort of the DEI thing, True. metastasizing. It's like, well, well what? And sure. so I, the, the, you, the, there's my, close-minded people all over the political <laughs> spectrum. They are, they're, they're all over. And, and we, the queer community can be as judgmental and harsh as any other part of society. And, and, you know, we're not perfect. There's no perfection anywhere. And so I, I totally understand what you're saying. And what I'm trying to do is acknowledge how fucking legendary you are, Jim, because oh, it's so nice. you, you give me a place to be included. You give me a place to stand in the discussion. And because you, you're open, I can ask you some of the questions that I think a lot of um, straight dudes might not a- ask. A I would dude. rather, I would rather, even if the question's uncomfortable, right? And even if the question, I'm like, ooh, like, ooh, that one kind of, but I would rather have the discussion and have the honesty and have the feedback than to to not have the discussion. Because I think I learned in this session with you today, I've learned. And it made me think about things and- and Me too. Things I have to do differently. And that's what how I want to spend my time. That's the glory of where I am in my life right now. I am blessed that I've had this amazing career. I am blessed that I was fiscally conservative and have some freedom right now yes. to do things I want to do. And this is how I want to spend my time. Like I, I want to continue to grow. I want to continue to learn. And I hopefully want to make little small impacts wherever I can make them. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Okay, great. Thank you is so much. Is there anything else, Jim? Well, good, good luck on the rest of the tour. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of your time and thank you, thank you for the book and, and, and the way you're going about this is fucking masterful. So thank uh, you. I really, really appreciate that. Bless Have you. Have a great day. Thanks. All right. There he is. The legendary Jim Fielding. His brand new book is out. It's called All Pride, No Ego, a queer executive's journey into living and leading authentically. And you can find his new book everywhere you find legendary books. I also um, want to take a moment here to remind everybody that our friends in Hawaii are having an incredibly tough time right now. 
And I've spent a lot of time in Hawaii. I have dear friends there. I have godchildren who live on Maui. And if you've been tracking the news lately, you know that there's been a horrible wildfire that has destroyed much of one of the most beautiful towns in all of the United States of America, Lahaina, Hawaii, on Maui. And, um, and there's been a lot of damage done to Maui and some to the Big Island as well. This damage is going to take a tremendous toll and it's going to tr- take a tremendous amount of effort and time and money to make a difference. So if you're in a position to help, I would ask you to do so and check out hawaiicommunityfoundation.org. That's hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui dash strong. That's hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui dash strong. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to all of us here. Uh, Don't forget that our friends at Clary will help you fix revenue leak and produce a breakthrough in your revenue. Check out CLARI.com. Our friends at Mighty Networks is, uh, uh, is how you build legendary native digital communities and courses. If you're a marketer and a creator who wants to monetize your work, check out MightyNetworks.com. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and all rights do remain perturbed. Uh, this podcast contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts do contain nuts, and all rights are disturbed. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, shaman, accountant, bud tender, and of course, category designer and yoga instructor, before doing anything about anything you heard today. Never forget, everything is the way that it is because somebody legendary changed the way that it was. We're produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast if you're into technology and you want a quick update on what's going on. Check out Boot Up with Jason. That's Boot Up with Jason. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do a legendary technical execution around here and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, uh, the Bobus Brothers, RJ and EX do our web and de- de- blah, blah, our web development, <laughs> and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on Squadcast.fm. Don't forget that Adele was right. Listen to Run DMC. Also want to thank the folks at Adobe. As you may know, Adobe is the largest provider of marketing and creative software in the world. And they were kind enough to name our first book, Play Bigger, one of the top five marketing books of all time. So thank you to all our friends at Adobe. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Elizabeth Holmes. Sorry, Lizzie. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.